is Lisa DeLay, and you are listening to the Spark My Muse podcast. everybody. Welcome to Spark My Muse. Today, my guest is Gail Boss and her book, Wild Hope, Stories for Lent from the Vanishing. We'll also be talking about her book for Advent season called All Creation Waits, The Advent Mystery of New Beginnings. Gail, thank you so much for being my guest today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Lisa. Thanks. I've really enjoyed the way you incorporate nature in your writing of for the Lenten season, for the Advent season. And maybe you can talk a little bit about who you are and what brought you to incorporate nature so much in your writing. I would like to say that I have been that person since I've been a child. And probably I was, but not aware that it was a distinction for me. I grew up in a small town and spent a lot of time on a farm that my grandparents owned, uh, tromping through the woods. And uh, felt that that was very much where I was at home. It, the town itself was right on the shores of Lake Michigan, so I walked to, to and past Lake Michigan every day. It was um, in my blood, and I didn't think that it was not in anyone else's blood, I guess. I spent 15 years in Washington, D.C. as a young adult and left it behind living in the inner city, doing um, ministry work there. But then when we went back to Michigan to raise our sons, I realized what I had been missing. I realized that I had a deep hunger that hadn't been satisfied for a long time. And that's when I plunged myself back into the natural world. Of course, having young children was also a uh, an open path for that. They were naturally interested in the squirrels and the rabbits and the deer and the woodchucks. We live right on the edge of an ecosystem preserve and walked there every day. And so led by my children, really, I re-immersed myself in the world that I knew as a child. The Advent book came about really as a result of an advent calendar that I made for my children, it was a synthesis or a, yeah, synthesis might be the word of my study in liturgical history and my love for the natural world. I had learned through a writing project that advent was originally designed in the fourth century by the fathers and mothers of the church really just the fathers of the church in the fourth century, as a season for the faithful to cope with a deep internal dis-ease that they had, the faithful in the northern hemisphere, as the light faded and the cold deepened. Agricultural people of the fourth century were tied to the earth in a way that we now can't imagine. And when that light and life seemed to be fading, they began to feel a great disease like I know the sun came back last year, but what if it doesn't return this year? What if there is no growing season? And if there was no growing season, they didn't eat. It was truly a, a foreboding of death. 
So the church understanding that biological disease that I think we still have, though we mask with great distractions, many of us, or we feel as seasonal affective disorder, the church, instead of wanting to mask that, said, sink into that bodily sense. Understand that, yes, light and life are going away, but in the dark, our faith tells us that a new beginning can be born. That's the whole story of the Christian faith, that in the deepest, darkest time, God is preparing a new beginning, a resurrection of one kind or another. So they encouraged the faithful to really sink into that season of the year. And the way they said to do that is to imitate what the creation is doing. The creation pairs down to essentials. It strips away anything that doesn't feed the kernel of life that it needs to get through the dark and cold. The turtle, for example, knowing she will freeze if she stays in the water or above ground, buries herself deeply in the mud and doesn't breathe in my part of the world for six months. That's her way of conserving all of her resources to focus on what Jesus called the one thing necessary. Well, the the church said, humans, we can do the same thing. And the way humans can do that are three practices for waiting faithfully through the dark, fasting, praying, and giving away, stripping down to the bare essentials of faith to prepare for that new beginning that wants to be born in the dark. So I knew that from my study of liturgical history, the church calendar. And I knew from the natural world what the natural world is doing. So I wanted to make uh, that link clear for my children. This is what Advent is about. But just trying to be quiet during the season of December when all of their friends' houses were lit with twinkly lights and playing Christmas songs and people were going to Christmas parties wasn't cutting it. So I thought, what if we had an Advent calendar that really showed this truth Of course, I couldn't find them in the store. All the Advent calendars in the store had pictures of candy canes and reindeer and gift packages, or they had scenes from the birth of Jesus, which are Christmas scenes, not Advent scenes. I wanted an Advent calendar that had scenes of the waiting, the preparing. I wanted my children to know that Advent is about loss and hope, fear and hope. So I made my own Advent calendar that showed animals waiting through the season, the turtle buried in the mud, the loon floating helplessly on the waves, the bear burying herself deep in the earth and waiting to bear her cubs while she sleeps. And my boys just loved it. They embraced Advent and still do in their own homes. But it took me 17 years after making that calendar to think, oh, this Advent calendar could be a book. It could be a book of reflections about each of these animals that tells this natural history and suggests what that animal is doing as a symbol for what a healthy human soul could do when faced with harsh weather, weather of whatever kind, whether it's grief or actual weather. And so I I made a book of reflections. I found 24 animals that each displayed a whole different way of coping with a harsh season and wrote it as a kind of metaphor for what a healthy human soul could do. 
from the back of the of your new book, there's a little bit of a, a blurb in here about all creation weights. And I would say to people listening to this, if you're interested in in starting to uh, introduce Advent and Lent seasons and all of their meanings, their very deep meanings as a family practice or something you might read at the dinner table um, that we do with our kids, um, that you get both of the Advent and the Lenten books. But All Creation Waits says this in, in the back of the book here. It says, open a window each day of Advent into the natural world. Here are 25 fresh images of the foundational truth that lies between beneath and within the Christ story in 25 portraits depicting how wild animals of the Northern Hemisphere ingeniously adapt when darkness and cold descend. We, we see and hear, as if for the first time, the ancient wisdom of Advent. The dark is not an end, but a way um, a new beginning comes. Short daily reflections that paint vivid poetic images of familiar animals paired with charming original woodcuts will engage both children and adults. Anyone who does not want to be caught again in the consumer hype of the holiday season, but rather to be taken into the eternal truth the natural world reveals will welcome this book. And I also want to mention that the illustrations are completely perfectly paired with this just a delight they would delight um children and adults so um it's a fantastic book and i learned a lot with the different animals i didn't realize are struggling to barely survive Mm. the winter yeah yeah you'll see a chickadee in a whole new light won't you after looking at all creation mates yeah Mm. yeah and then for lent you you really take kind of a different turn and go with endangered species species we don't know as much about the we know the familiar ones, but not in such a, a dramatic and in-depth way, which you open up to us. But then in, in the Lenten book, you take a different turn, and maybe you can talk about that that journey for that. Yeah, that was that was a um, a case of being sort of roped and tied by the Holy Spirit, the spirit of um, all life and love. I had just finished All Creation Waits. We had gone through the first advent of its release, 2016, advent of 2016. And I was wondering to myself, hmm, I wonder what I might write next. And in my prayers, I heard a word. I heard two words, animal suffering. I knew I wanted to keep writing about animals. I'm just so enraptured by them. But I also heard suffering, which is not a word I wanted to hear. When you love a creature, creatures, and a dimension of creation, you really don't want to look at its suffering. But I, I was hearing that um, that little nagging voice in the back of my prayers and trying to ignore it. Uh, at the same time, Christmas of 2016, I was in my childhood home, my parents' home in northern Michigan, and I saw the current issue of National Geographic. I picked it up and I riffled through it, and I saw a picture that uh, would not let me look away from animal suffering. It was a picture of eight baby orangutans in a wheelbarrow. And as I scanned the text and the captions, I knew that it was a story that was going to make me decidedly unchristmassy company for the rest of my stay there. So I buried the magazine at the bottom of the pile of magazines. But that picture kept swimming back into my mind, especially early in the morning as I was waking up. I couldn't forget it. So 
finally I gave in a couple of weeks later, I went to my local branch of the library. I found that issue of National Geographic and I read the story about the endangered orangutans of Sumatra and Borneo. Not five days later, uh, a woman that I had met only once emailed me to say, I'm going to be coming to your hometown. She lived about 40 miles away uh, on January 5. Would you meet me for lunch? And I couldn't really imagine what she wanted to talk about, but I said, sure. We met for lunch, and before I even had a bite of lunch in my mouth, she handed me an article from Audubon magazine about the amazing imperiled little shorebird called the Red Knot. And she looked at me and she said, this is what you're supposed to write next. Uh, She was really a stranger to me, and I was taken aback. And she did follow that up saying, I trust that you have the discernment to know whether I'm just blowing hot air or if this is a word to you. So I took that in. I read the story about the red knot. And then there was one other card that, that, that the Spirit of God kind of played, the coup de grace, really, that sealed the deal. That this project was the one for this period of my life. Uh, I began getting letters, um, one especially from North Carolina, one from Seattle from two people who had read All Creation Waits. And both of them said, would you consider writing a sequel to All Creation Waits, but this one for Lent? And suddenly it all came together in my mind and heart. Animal suffering, endangered species, species that are endangered because of the way we humans live as a theme for Lent, a season for penance real examination of the true state of our hearts and the world that we've made. And um, it was it, it was illuminated in my mind and heart that that was exactly what I was to do next. I mean, these, these, these four events that all coalesced within less than a month. Uh, so I set out in January of 2017 to write what became Wild Hope stories for Lent from the vanishing and took, um, yeah, how long did I, yeah, two and a half years to write. Mm -hmm. And you take animals from all over the world and Mm -hmm. also some coral is in here. Um, (laughs) There's a lot, uh, the monarch, there's some there's some that I'm very familiar with. There's others that I've never heard of until I saw this book. Um, and so how did you decide which to pick? Um, what, what helped you determine that? There are so many endangered species. Yeah, it was. A, yes, there are thousands and thousands. And the U.N. tells us that a million were in danger of losing a million species, some in the next few decades by 2050. 2050, unless we change our way of living. So (laughs) there were many to choose from. And um, my publisher and I agreed that we had room to make the book affordable if we were to include the illustrations for 25. So how did I narrow it down to 25? That was the question. It was a long and a long process, and it's going to sound more logical as I describe it than it was. It was a lot of trial and error and feeling around in the dark. But What I eventually came to was, first of all, I knew I wanted to include animals from all over the world to show that this is a global crisis. Second, I wanted to include animals of 
all the major categories of animals, reptiles, amphibians, mammals, birds, fish. So at least one animal from all of those designations. And then as I was looking at how to group them, it was really in a conversation with my younger son that we arrived at choosing them and categorizing them by the kind of threat that faces them. Are, are we losing this animal because of a loss of habitat? Are we losing this animal because it's losing its food source? Are we losing this animal because it's being hunted? Are we losing this animal because it has been made sick by the ways humans live, whether that's pollution or catching our diseases? And then really the stroke of genius that came through the air to me was, oh, wait, this parallels what Jesus says in Matthew's gospel when he says, the hungry, the sick, the homeless, the imprisoned, these, the least of these are my brothers and sisters. And I thought, yes, that's what we've done to animals too. They are hungry. They are sick. They are homeless. They are imprisoned. And they are the least of these, Jesus's brothers and sisters. And how better to categorize them or uh, to group them for Lent? That that by echoing Jesus's words, maybe maybe I could help people see them as the least of these Jesus's brothers and sisters, our brothers and sisters. So it was all those things coming together: regions of the world, kinds of animals in the animal kingdom, the threats they face, and grouping them as the least of these Jesus's brothers and sisters. So for example, the first week of Lent, there are four animals for each of the six weeks of Lent. The first week of Lent is called the hungry. And the four animals given for reading in the first week of Lent are animals that are dying out because they don't have anything to eat. So that's, that's how it happened. Yeah, that is really profound. And I think um, one of the things in Lent that we're supposed to be examining, we're supposed to be examining our hearts and our sin during Lent and not to um, uh, just riddle us with guilt so we're paralyzed or anything like that, but to... But to bring those things to the surface, to bring those impurities to the surface and and have a reckoning with ourselves about uh, ways, behaviors or thoughts that we are not supple to God and God's ways, whether we don't have empathy or whether we're not doing what we can to help uh, our animal friends, but our, our human friends too. And I think that what's interesting about taking our time carefully and going through these different vulnerable species of animals is that we're realizing our own vulnerability too. I'm so glad you brought that up, Lisa. Yeah, I realize now that as, as I described the animals and how they were chosen, I'm making it sound like a book of guilt. I am firmly convinced, convicted that we will not save species until we love them. So what I try to do is create these stories that compel people to see them as amazing, magnificent, and want to and feel moved to love them. So really the bulk of the portrait of each animal is look at this amazing creature. Can you, can you open your heart to it? Um, 
I want people's hearts like mine to soften to these creatures. And then also it's called wild hope because I want people also to see the people who have fallen in love with each of these creatures to such an extent that they're devoting their lives to their preservation. Um, For example, the people who are trying to save the OLM, O-L-M, this foot-long salamander that lives at the bottom of lakes, at the bottom of caves in Croatia and Bosnia. Um, These people do what gives me chills to even think about. They lower themselves through cracks in the earth to get into underground caves, and then they lower themselves 100, 200, even 300 feet below the water. So you're underwater, under a cave to study this salamander. What a sacrifice. They do this, and nobody knows about them. Very few people know about the creature, but they're so in love with and devoted to these creatures. They've given their lives to do this. Um, So I, I want us all to fall in love with these creatures because I'm really convinced we won't save what we don't love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's including a, it's a love story. Yeah, yeah, and we we won't save what we love, and that that also includes ourselves and our fellow human beings. Mm. And I I think that's that's exactly what spiritual practices do. They make us more human. Yes, um, it's be- that's beautiful, and I I think that that's why um, it's it's kind of an unlikely combo uh, that you do with with animals and. And Lent, like I don't see anyone else. The, the the shelves are not full of books like yours at all, and that's what makes it so uh, unique and and so attractive. It's a whole new way of looking at the season and and peering into our hearts and asking God to make us new again through these vulnerable voices that the vulnerable perspectives of the animals and their amazing lives that we, unless you're already studying these animals, you really wouldn't know about. Right, right. No, I didn't know most of what I wrote. It was, yeah. uh, it was a day after day of discovery for me. Mm-hmm. Would you mind reading a, a one of them or part part of one of them that you think is particularly uh, useful? How about um, the portrait that opens up that section called "The Hungry," the one I mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, the red knot. This was really what impelled one of the four things that impelled me to write the book when the stranger named Rochelle Oppenheisen in Holland, Michigan, gave me the article from Audubon Magazine on this imperiled shorebird called the Red Knot. And um, so in honor of her, I chose that as the first animal to write about in week one of Lent. This is the portrait called Red Knot. Shoulder to shoulder, hundreds of stout little birds pace the edge of the ebbing tide. All at once they burst up, then flutter down, regroup, pace again. It's an evening in late February and everything in them tells the flock of red knots, leave soon. They're synchronizing a pole to pole flight precisely with the movements of creatures a continent away. As with aerial acrobats, a gap in connections is apt to be fatal. For almost five months, they've been preparing themselves for this feat. Last October, they dropped onto this thumb of land at the southern end of the earth, famished, having spent every last coin of strength 
flying 9,500 miles from the Canadian Arctic after they labored to hatch and pledge a clutch of chicks on the unforgiving tundra. Through blinding gales, they probed the tidal plain of Tierra del Fuego, gobbling little clams and mussels whole. They've kept their intention singular to regain weight and rebuild breast muscle. Their return trip, not a mile shorter, will perhaps cost them more. Now the weight of an avocado. They preen the new set of flight feathers they've grown for this moment. Ready, sensing the tick of their internal clocks. Still they wait for better weather. Stiff winds and storms sap precious reserves and skew their impeccable timing. Finally, a clear, calm window opens in the evening sky. With a shuddering swoosh, they lift and wheel, curving smoothly, sinuously, upward, upward, one bird never jostling another, one vast wing body. And it goes on from there. Yeah, thank you so much. It's so beautifully written, and that's why I think it makes, um, it's delightful to read for anyone who, who enjoys reading but it's also uh very captivating for children to hear it uh read aloud to them um and there's so many great animals to become acquainted with polar bears and uh, bats and koalas and frogs and um albatross rhinoceros so many in here this work that you've done is a great gift to to many people and and so i'm, I'm so glad you put in all, all that work i'm sure it was it was a blood sweat and tears at the time it was all said and done yeah especially tears when you start to realize that for example the red knot we've lost 75 percent of them in my lifetime and this the numbers from this last migration are down again. It, it does not look good. It was also a very sorrowful two and a half years to immerse myself in the suffering of innocence. What can be done in, in certain in certain cases when someone's reading this and they they can hold space in their heart for this suffering? And are there practical things that can be done about this this shorebird? You know, I don't in these stories say now if you want to protect the red knot. Here's what you can do. I list websites at the back of the book for protection groups for each of the animals, and those groups will give you that kind of advice. Uh, my aim was just to say, fall in love with this creature. And then if you want to do something to protect it, you can do the research to find out. You can look up what to do. Some of it's quite apparent, like with the red knot, one of the reasons they're starving is that we've built up the whole shoreline. And they have no place to um, probe the tidal plain for these uh, horseshoe crab eggs, their main source of food on their migration, because we've just, we've built up the whole shoreline. Um, other things are not so obvious. What I do put in each portrait, what is at the end, for example, of the Red Knot portrait, is the story of a woman who is part of a larger research team who spends her life tracking their migrations, measuring the birds, measuring the number of nests, measuring the number of horseshoe crab eggs, and then trying to get the story out to the wider public to say, we're losing these amazing words of God, these creatures. And unless we change our lives, 
they will be no more. That word of God will disappear from the earth. Um, so I think, I know I was inspired by the stories of um, these people who are giving their lives to these birds. And I can't run off and be a research scientist for any number of reasons. Mostly, I just lack the stamina and the courage of most of, of most of them. But I can be a volunteer. I can go to the Eastern Shore and volunteer on one of the counts that happen in Delaware in the month of May. Or I can resist development on my corner of the beach. It will become, I really think that if we love something we will find what we need to do to protect it. Yeah. Um, I wanted to also ask you about spiritual practices that you do. I'm assuming that many of them have to do with being in the natural world, whether it's taking a walk or, or you know, praying outside or, or some, reading outside or something like that. But I was curious, I usually try to, um, or I, I should say occasionally when a guest comes on, um, I kind of probe them for ideas for spiritual practices that they might do so mm-hmm. it can inspire other people to take up something mm-hmm. in that vein if it if they're so inspired. Yeah, of course you would guess it's a natural conclusion that I do <laughs> spend time outdoors. Um, I mentioned I think that I live in the backyard of an ecosystem preserve that's run by a university, Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So that makes it easy for me every day to be in the wetlands, uh, in the hardwood forest, and to uh, walk slowly, to breathe deeply, to try to empty my mind and really be with the creatures and listen for what they might say. Um, I also practice contemplative prayer, centering prayer, which is... um, centuries, centuries old practice uh, meant to empty the mind and soften the heart and anchor the will to detach us from our egos, which are causing us to our our self-absorption that is um, has us hell-bent on the way we live, unwilling to change. So that a practice like that that helps us to loosen ourselves from our egos and see that deeper self rooted in God, rooted in love for others unlike ourselves is kind of the cornerstone of my practice, helping myself get free of myself and freed into a larger compassion. Yeah, what you're speaking about has a lot to do with presence, um, mm-hmm. offering presence, uh, actually being where you are with the creatures that are near you, but also, in a sense, having presence with your deepest self, um, mm-hmm. and not just like the the monkey chatter brain that happens to us all sometimes when we're, you know, getting our plans together or something. But that actual stilling down um, mm-hmm. maybe gets to our essential the essential nature of ourselves. We are nature. And mm-hmm. I think that that escapes me sometimes. I think oh, I'm just as natural as this tree. I'm not natural like my computer, you know. I'm, right. Uh, <laughs> uh, but we yes. interact with computers a lot more than trees, and so I think 
sometimes we we separate ourselves from what is actually more us, you know. Uh, and so, mm. offering presence to nature will hopefully give us more room, even just for ourselves or for our fellow humans. Oh, and they give back so much more than we give them that we offer. They give back so much more presence than we offer. Yeah. Hmm, that's really beautiful. Well, is there any final thing you want to say about the book or where you can be found online? Anything like that? Mm, I'm happy to have people contact me through my website, gailboss.com. Uh, there's contact form there. And um, I guess I would just say in relation to my new book, Wild Hope Stories for Lent from the Vanishing, that I'm really persuaded that though the news is grim and dire, that wild hope is loose in the world. It really is if we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear and that it wants to birth through our suffering love. It wants to birth that new creation where we will not hurt or destroy in all God's holy mountain, like the prophet Isaiah says. It wants to birth through us that that more beautiful world that really lies waiting in each of our hearts. That's so beautiful. Thank you so much, Gail. It's just been a pleasure. Thank you, Lisa, for the opportunity. Mm-hmm. 